Good morning, good morning. Thank you to the two people who said good morning back. The rest of you, whatever. We're not on good terms now. All right. I'm glad. I'm, I'm really excited to be uh, here with you guys today. This is always such a pleasure for me. I'm trying things different. Last week, I just held my thing. I'm going to try sitting this week. We're going to see what happens. So, hope you guys are okay with that. Um, last week, we had a great, great message. We, we talked about, um, I'm going to give everybody just a minute. We had a lot of people just leave. And I'm fixing to dive in. I need everybody's attention when we get here. By the way, while we're waiting, we have a new baby in the house. I'm going to go ahead and introduce Miss Davis. Would you show, would you, I know Ben doesn't have probably, but I'm, I'm excited about this new baby. Look at this baby. You got to stand up and hold her up. Come on. There we go. Ben's the man. That's awesome. I walked in the hallway a while ago, and, and Miss Davis was there, and little Miss Presley was there, and they, or Preston, it, I can never, help me, Presley. I had it right the first time, and I went back on it. Anyway, they were both standing in the hallway, two, eight days apart. Oh, they're so precious. I was really excited. You guys know me. No, I, I love uh, little babies, so anyway, excited about that. Glad they're here today. So last week, we talked about, oop, I'm caught up. We talked about how we are... Just like um, a, a Priscilla and Aquila, in that um, we are people going on about our lives. We, we run into the gospel. It changes who we are, and, and it changes how we do life. And we see that happen in their lives. They, Paul and, and Aquila and Priscilla meet up. Paul pours into them for a couple of years, and then immediately he's, he, he moves on to the next place of ministry as the Holy Spirit is directing, and he brings them with them, and he places them in leadership. Okay? Bethany sent me a quote this week. Um, and, and I really liked it, and I Googled it, it's from a marriage book. I don't know if that's supposed to, I don't know if that was subliminal. No, it's not, I'm just kidding. Um, uh, but it said this, it said, Discipleship is a maturing believer taking an immature by the hand and walking into maturity together. And I thought that was really a great way of thinking about what it is that we're called to as a church. Is we are called to, to help people understand what it means to live under grace and to to walk with the Lord on a daily basis. That, for me, is a really beautiful picture of what that looks like. It's us um, going to the people that God's put in our lives that aren't to the place mature-wise in our relationship with God and walking hand-in-hand with them, both of us growing at the same time. It's not that we're in one place and we're pulling people up to where we are. It's that we're grabbing one another by the hand and we're walking together and discovering more about who God is together. Um, we talked about last week that one of our ministries is always going to be one of the things that God has, has told us about our church is that we're going to be a church that, that goes after wanderers, those that are stuck in dead religion, that have been in, maybe in church their whole life, and it's just been a thing that they do, but it's not part of their DNA, it's not part of who they are, and helping those people to understand what it means to, to walk with the Lord. Um, and we're going to see today that that often gets uh, quite a dramatic reaction from established um, religion. And, and so we're going we're to dive into that. But before we get there, I want to go over a couple of other things. We see that God continues to conform um, the ministry of Paul, or confirmed by his miracles. We talked about that last week, how it says in that, in that text that even um, aprons and handkerchiefs that had come in contact with Paul, if other people touched them, that they would be healed by that. And it's the Holy Spirit letting the people know that Paul is the real deal. 
that the, the message that he is preaching is of God and that Jesus was the Son of God and that the Holy Spirit is here and alive and, and taking care of business. And then we talked about uh, the sons of, of Sceva and we talked about, the, and if you remember, these are some Jewish uh, young men who decided that they wanted to be as great as Paul was and so they tried to cast out some demons on their own and the demons said, I know who Paul is and I know who Jesus is, but who are you? Um, and, and the demons whooped them, uh, ran them all out of the house naked. That was a great visual um, to think about in church. Uh, but we talked about the fact that God is not going to let us take credit for his work. That as we are doing this ministry that God has called us to do, that we want to be very clear that it's not anything good in us, but it's the power of the Holy Spirit only. And that's really important for what we're going to talk about today. We're going to see some reactions um, to, to the, what happens when we preach the true gospel um, and we need to, to be very um, vocal about the fact that the things that we're teaching, the things that we're doing are not of us. It's not that Glenn and Will had this great idea. It's that we are looking at the Word of God, we're studying it, we're saying, okay, what's the application for us? How, did, how, did, how is the Holy Spirit working in the New Testament church? And what are the changes that God is calling us to make in our personal lives so that we can be as effective as the early church was? Um, we, we looked at um, Paul teaching in the hall of Tyrannus, um, and, and I, I ran across some things this week that were very, very interesting, things that I didn't know spe 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 specifically about Paul, okay? So he taught in the hall of Tyrannus, but what I didn't know and what you probably don't know is that only happened after the work day was over. As I was studying a little bit this week, I learned that Paul's schedule looked a lot like ours does, specifically when he was in Ephesus. He was, he was providing his own income. We've talked about that a couple of times over the last few weeks, but Paul would get up early in the morning. He would spend time with the Lord, just like we do, and then he would work all day. And then one of the commentaries that I was reading was said that, that the stuff in the Hall of Tyrannus didn't happen until after the fifth hour because the Hall of Tyrannus was a public hall. It was a place where they held public hearings and discussions and things like that. And so what we see in Paul's life is that it looks a lot like ours. He had a full work day, and after his work day was done is when ministry began. And so the application for me and for you guys is that we really don't have a lot of excuses. Paul's in Ephesus for two years, and, and he even makes the statement in, in, this, in these passages that in those two years, every person that in, the, in the region of Asia that wanted to hear the gospel had an opportunity because of the ministry of Paul. Now, that's not saying that Paul reached out to each person individually, but he is grabbing these less mature believers by the hand and they're walking together and the gospel is spreading because of the people. But Paul's ministry looks just like yours and ours does, okay? I wanted to, to talk about something. We've had a little bit of confusion in a few of the life groups and so I just want to make sure we're all on the same page about some things. As we talk about building the church, um, we aren't talking about um, what we're doing in other places. We're talking about what you are doing. Okay, so as we're talking about building the churches, we're not talking about um, missionaries that we have across the country and other parts of the globe. We're not talking about what I'm doing. We're not talking about what Glenn's doing. We're not talking about what anybody else is doing. And when, when we have these type of moments, when you are having discussions in life groups and we talk about us building the church, what we are talking about is we're talking about what are you doing? I'm going to worry about what I'm doing. You worry about what you're doing. And if we all are doing that, if we're all being obedient to the Holy Spirit, then the church is going to spread. But when, when we have in our minds that when we talk about building the church, if we're thinking, oh, that's what so-and-so does because they're the life group leader, then we've got the wrong mindset. The, the, the goal and the call for each of us is that we together are building the church, okay? And one of the things that I want to make really, really clear, we've, we've been throwing around the word house church a lot. 
uh, and, and it's caused a, some confusion with a few folks because there has been a very pointed movement over the last decade or so of planting house churches, and it's a very distinct-looking thing. That's, that's not what we're talking about. When we say house churches, don't let your mind go there because this corporate experience, is, this is, God has called us to do this. It's in our distinctives that we will meet on Sunday mornings. That's not going to change. What we're talking about when we talk about house churches is you doing church in your house. And, and I ran across something this week that I want to read to you guys, and we're going we're gonna to hit a lot of scripture today. So if you've got a paper Bible, good luck. Um, if you've got your app with you, get your thumbs warmed up because we're fixing to go to work, okay? We're going we're gonna to hit some of these pretty fast, and I'm going to do my best to, to read them well and keep you guys engaged. But here's what, I, here's what I read this week, and this was, believe it or not, this is a book that I got when I was in college, and I went back and looked at it, and it was great. So, uh, little college, uh, Will, little Will's College Education here. Paul distinguishes several forms and occasion for the gathering of the church, yet verbally they all bear the common designation of assembling or coming together. So Paul is using this term, gathering or assembling, and we're going to see this in a couple of places. In 1 Corinthians 5, 4, it says, when you are assembled in the name of the Lord Jesus, and my spirit is present with the power of our Lord Jesus. 1 Corinthians eleven seventeen. But in the following instructions, I do not command you, because when you come together, it is not for the better, but for the worse. 1 Corinthians 11.20, when you come together, it is not the Lord's Supper that you eat. 1 Corinthians 11.33-34, so then, my brothers, when you come together to eat, wait for one another. If anyone is hungry, let him eat at home, so that when you come together, it will not be for judgment about the other things I will give directions when I come. 1 Corinthians 14.23, if, therefore, the whole church comes together and all speak in tongues and outsiders or unbeliever enters, they will not say that you are out of your minds. 1 Corinthians 14, 26. What then, brothers, when you come together, each one of you has a hymn, a lesson, a revelation, a tongue, or an interpretation. Let all these things be done for building up. This mode of expression, this coming together, comes from the Hellenistic culture. Okay, It's this idea of of people coming together for a common purpose. And those purposes can be varied, but the idea that Paul is communicating to the early church is that he wants them to gather, okay? Like at the gathering place, I'm just saying, okay? Theologically, though, this is important. Theologically, it is used figuratively to describe the existence of the believers and their transformation. Paul is simply pointing out that they are operating differently than other religions around them. He is not, however, giving a formula for operation. He is simply saying, this is what we are doing. We are coming together. It's happening at homes. It's happening in public halls. It's happening by the river. We are coming together. We are assembling as one body. But it's, so we are like other religions in that way. And he's not giving a formula. He's not saying, what I don't want you to do is to look at these passages and say, well, it's house church or nothing, because that's where Paul met. That's not what Paul's trying to communicate, okay? Um, it, he, he's using this theoretically, or excuse me, figuratively to, to explain what is going on. It says in Romans 12, 1 through 2, I appeal to you, therefore, brothers, by the mercies of God, to present your bodies as a living sacrifice, holy and acceptable to God, which is your spiritual worship. Do not be conformed to this world, but be transformed by the renewal of your mind, that by testing you may discern what is the will of God, what is good and acceptable and perfect. Okay, so corresponding to this fact that the Christian churches were probably the only communion and in that world, in that antiquity, that had no special place of worship, 
Rather, they came together in places of regular life in their private homes. They're distinct, and, and Paul is pointing out the reason I share those, two, that, those verses from Romans is that what, what Paul is communicating is that there is a sacrifice that is being made by each believer. They're giving up their time, they're giving up their possessions, they're giving up their homes for the sake of allowing the body to come together for the purpose of worship, okay? Romans 1, 16, 5, it says, greet also the church in their house. Greet my beloved, I'm not even going to try to say that, who is the first covenant, uh, a convert to Christ in Asia. 1 Corinthians 16, 19, the churches of Asia send you greetings, Aquila and Priscilla, together with the church in their house. Send you hearty greetings in the Lord. Philemon 1, and two, chapter 1, verse 2, the Aphia, our sister, and our Chippus, the fellow soldier, and in your church in your house. Okay, so we see this word house happening over and over and over again. And, and the reason for that is because that's all they had. They didn't have um, accessories. They didn't have buildings. They didn't have all of these things that the Jewish temple had. They had a place. They had all these things that were part of worship. And the early church didn't have that. Their existence uh, and their ethics became worship in the world. Okay? Um, Whenever we, we look at what Christians were doing, they gathered in the same room and at the same table in which they had their daily meal, and then they had the Lord's Supper, and there was no break in between. Okay, so here's the picture that we're seeing of the early church. They didn't have all this stuff. That's why they met in houses. It's not that houses are, are super spiritual or better than a, a, a temple or a public hall or anything like that. They met in homes because that's what they had. And they, they sat at the table where they had dinner, and they also had the Lord's Supper at the same time. There was no break in between. The point there is, is that there, there, there's no sacred-secular divide. We've talked about that before. What they did every day on a normal day, daily basis, they got together for a meal at the end of the day. They, they shared fellowship with one another, and they shared the Lord's Supper, and all of that was one combined unit. It wasn't, it wasn't separated, Okay. They met this way because there was no other option for them, okay? They didn't have the resources, and we're going to see today that Paul's doing some fundraising specifically for the church in Jerusalem because they were so poor, okay? These are people that, that are giving up everything that they own for the sake of, of everybody else around them. They didn't have all this, um, you know, hundreds of years of wealth stacked up behind them like the Jewish church did, okay? So I, I just want to be super clear about this when we're, when we're having conversations about house churches, okay? It's not about where we meet. The whole point of that phrase is to talk about how we live. Just like we see in, in these examples that I've given you, we are gathering together to share life with one another. We're gathering in homes because we already have those. We own them. It's comfortable to bring somebody into your home, but the, the, the specialness is not about the place that we meet, whether it's this place or your home. The specialness is what happens when we get together, okay? I had this thought this week, and I was, I was telling this to Bethany. It's kind of one of those, you, you have this thought, and you're like, duh, okay, obviously will, okay? But here was my thought. Christ gave his life for us, okay? Not just his death. Because for me, I don't know about you, but for me, when I think about the, the concept of Christ giving his life, my mind, my mind goes to the cross. And I think about that week that happened during the, the, the thing that we celebrate in Easter, his death on the cross. When I think of Jesus giving his life, that's what I compartmentalize in my mind for whatever reason, just that. But when scripture says that Christ gave his life, it means that he gave all 33 years of it. From the time he was born to the time he died, everything that he had, every moment Christ gave for us. And that's significant 
for me and you because that's what he's asking of us. Let that sink in for a minute. He's not asking for a life group night and a Sunday morning at church. He's asking for your whole life. The problem that we see in the church today is that for hundreds of years, the church has given 90 minutes on a Sunday morning and maybe one other night a week. We aren't devoted. We're not devoted to, to learning the scriptures. We're not devoted to one another and living in community because we, we have in our minds, and it's not our fault, so it's what we were taught, it's what we grew up with. But what we see in scripture, what we see in Paul's life, what we see in Aquila and Priscilla's life, what we see in the other disciples' lives that are, that are helping build this new church is that they gave everything, every moment. Their houses, their doors were open at all times. And, and because of that, the church grew so quickly. Think about how, how quickly, it would, how, how slowly you would get through college if you only went to class once a week for your whole college career. It would take forever. And, and the same thing is true for us. If we are only spending time developing who we are in Christ once or twice a week, that's why we see such slow growth is because we're not devoted to it. We haven't made it important in our lives, okay? Um, one of the things that I thought about this week to, to help kind of help you visualize this is... Um, And I talk about foster care a lot because it's obviously very dear to me. If you don't know me, we've got two kids that we adopted through the foster care system. Um, But we've got two families right now that are fostering children. We've got Carrie and Carol Westbrook, and we've got um, Brittany and Russ Meek. When you, and if you, I was telling Bethany today, if you've never had a foster kid, you can't possibly understand what I'm talking about. Um, But I'm going to help you try to, okay? Imagine for a moment that life is cool, everything's good. Okay, God says, hey, I want you to do foster care. And you're like, woohoo, this is going to be great. All right? And then you get a call one afternoon, and they show up with a child that is not yours. And they say, here you go. Okay? Raise your hand if you've had a baby before, or your spouse has. Okay? You know how drastically life changes when that baby shows up, right? Like, one day everything's cool, and the next day you're like, oh my God, I'm so tired. Okay? Right? Okay? If you've had a baby before, you know what I'm talking about. Okay, the same thing is true with foster care. And, and when, just like a foster child, just like a biological child, you don't get to take a break. You don't get to go home from that. That is your life, and you're giving up every moment of every day for that child's well-being. That, that is devotion, right? That is the level of devotion that Christ wants from us for the church. That's heavy, but that's what God's asking for. He doesn't want two days a week. He wants every moment. Okay, so th- t- today we're going to look in, uh, in Scripture and we're going to see uh, something that when I first read it, I wasn't really sure where I was going to go with it. And you'll, you'll see why in a minute. We're going to talk about a riot that happened in Ephesus because of the ministry of Paul. And when I first read this a couple of weeks ago, Gillian sent this text to me and said, this is what you're going to preach on. And I read it and was like, wow, okay, God, um, we'll need your help on this one because I don't know where we're going. Okay, but at the very beginning of this sermon series of, of talking about living in community, Glenn preached a message called Knowing the Opposition, okay? And today, mine, um, if you can pop it back up there, is Facing Opposition, okay? So we've, we've come a long ways, but the Knowing Opposition was talking about understanding the schemes of the enemy and the fact that he is after us all the time. When we're pursuing the Lord, the enemy is going to be fighting that 100% because before that, he's got us, okay? He's got our attention and everything's cool, but as soon as we start pursuing the Lord... It makes the enemy nervous because now he's not winning anymore. And so we see attacks from the enemy. So we talked about in the beginning of this how important it is for us to know the schemes of the enemy, to see how he's working so that when he pops up, we can very quickly recognize it and address it. Well, today we're going to look at how 
um, the Holy Spirit handles some opposition. And, and we're going to see that God takes care of the whole thing. So let's jump in. We're going to be in Acts. Today we're going to cover verse, uh, chapter 19, verses 21 through 41. But I'm going to break it up into a few chunks, and we're going to kind of work through it. I've got four points that I want to, I want to make in, in, uh, in our time that we have today. And so hang in there with me. So let's jump in, uh, starting with verse 21. Now, after these events, Paul resolved in the Spirit to pass through Macedonia and Achaia and go to Jerusalem, saying, After I have been there, I must also see Rome. And having sent into Macedonia two of his helpers, Timothy and Erastus, he himself stayed in Asia for a while. Okay, so we see for Paul that his determined purpose is to obey the Holy Spirit. So point number one for us today is our determined purpose must be to obey the Holy Spirit. Moment by moment, being the church, doing life with God, saying, God, no matter what you say, I'm going to do it. Okay, let me give you some, let me give you some, if you haven't experienced that before, let me give you some handles to hold that on. I'm, I'm going to talk about carrying care for just a minute because they're going through something that's really difficult. Um, and, and so I'm telling you for two reasons. Number one, it's going to illustrate this point, but number two, they need your prayers. Okay? Carrie and Kara have been fostering a little girl named Alyssa. You guys have seen her around. She's been here for quite a while, okay? They've had her long enough that Alyssa feels like theirs. And they have been praying and asking the Lord. Carrie specifically has been asking God, is she going to be ours? And he felt like the, word, the Lord gave him a word that she would be and that he was to name her hope, okay? So Carrie... Uh, has been praying through that. The Lord's been speaking. He's been sharing that in life group. He's been sharing that with me personally. Um, and then they got a call last week that Alyssa was going to go to her aunt's house. Okay? But Carrie knows what the Lord told him. He and I had a conversation this morning. He knows what the Lord has said to him. He knows what the Lord is, has put before him, but it doesn't look like what he expected it to look like. Alyssa's at her aunt's house right now. And so we're walking through that together, and, and we don't know what the outcome is going to be. We know that God has said over and over and over that he needs to be faithful because God is faithful. Okay? That's walking with the Lord moment by moment. It's saying, God, I, and, and, and being determined to be obedient to the Lord. I don't know what's going on right now. I don't know if you've ever been in a place like that. I certainly have, where you feel like God is giving you a word, and you're pursuing that, and you're doing the things the Lord's told you to do, and it doesn't look like what is happening is what God has said is going to happen. That's a tough place to be in. But we have to be determined to be obedient. So like this says all the time, and you've heard me quote it a million times, is that, that obedience is success. We've got to be obedient to what the Holy Spirit is telling us to do. And a lot of times we can't see it because our, our scope, our imagination is not big enough to see what God is doing. And I don't know what's going to happen specifically with Karen and Kara, Carrie and Kara and Alyssa, but I know that my heart is, is aching for them. I told Kerry today, he's going through the Potiphar's care that always scared me to death. That's the, for me, was the, was the most terrifying part. And so, man, we're praying for you guys. And we love you. And we're going to continue to ask God on your behalf as you ask God what his will is. And, we're, and I am determined, and I know you guys are too, to obey that. Okay? No matter how unrealistic it seems in the moment, what God's telling you he's going to do, we have to obey. Okay, Paul's plan, if you will pop that map up there, I don't know how easy it's going to be to see up here. So Paul's plan, as we just read in scripture, and I'll, I'll read this again, just so you're clear. After these events, talking about all the things that, that we talked about last week, Paul resolved in the spirit, so the Holy Spirit is telling him 
to, to go back to Jerusalem. Paul's been taking up an offering in all of the places he's been to bring back to Jerusalem. And, and I think we'll look at that in a minute. I think I put some scripture in there about that. But Paul knows that he's got to go back to Jerusalem. But the Spirit tells him first to go to Macedonia and Achaia. Okay, so you see where he's at, little flag up here in Asia. Okay, we know that Jerusalem's down here in Judea, right? Okay. So he's got to go from Asia to Judea, but God tells him first to go to Macedonia, which is up from there. He's going the wrong direction. So God's telling him, you're going to Jerusalem, but first go to these other two places. Now that doesn't, I've planned a lot of road trips. That doesn't make any sense to go east to go back west, right? It's like we went to Las Vegas recently, but we went there via California. It was not on the way, <laughs> okay? Matter of fact, it was very out of the way, but... There's going to be times in your life where God's going to say, I want you to do this, and it's going to be unrealistic, and the people that are around you are going to say, you've lost your mind. This is not the way you should be doing it, okay? We have to be determined that when the Holy Spirit speaks, no matter how unrealistic it sounds, if we know, if we've got an inscription, we see it, we've talked with some other strong believers about it, and we're confident this is what God is saying, no matter how unrealistic it is, we must be determined to follow the Holy Spirit in that direction, okay? We've got to stay put where God has us until he moves us. Paul was in Ephesus for two years. It's one of the longest places we've seen so far that he's been. And he had other places that he wanted to go and share the gospel. And he says that over and over as we're studying through the book of Acts, that he wants to go here and the Holy Spirit says, no, don't go yet, okay? Paul waited for the Holy Spirit to release him to go somewhere else before he did so. Let's look at uh, verse 23 through 27. It says, about that time there arose no little disturbance concerning the way. For a man named Demetrius, a silversmith who made silver shrines of Artemis, brought no little business to the craftsmen. That's a very weird way of saying there was a big disturbance by this guy who made a lot of silver stuff. Okay? Some double negatives in there and it makes it confusing. All right? So there was a lot of disturbance by a guy who made a lot of silver shrines to Artemis, who is a um, a God that they worship there in Ephesus. Okay, verse 25. These he gathered together with the workmen in similar trades and said, Men, you know that from this business we have our wealth. And you see and hear that not only in Ephesus, but in almost all of Asia, this Paul has persuaded and turned away a great many people, saying that gods made with hands are not gods. And there is the danger, not only that this trade of ours may come into disrepute, but also that the temple of the great goddess Artemis may be counted as nothing, and she may even be deposed from her magnificence, she whom all Asia and the world worship. So this temple of Artemis in Ephesus is one of the ancient seven wonders of the world. It's this massive thing, and Ephesus' main income was happening during the, during the time period, during the, the part of the year that this story is happening. There was a huge amount, a huge influx of people that would come in to worship Artemis in the temple. And when they came in, they would buy all these little shrines. They were made out of silver and copper and, uh, and terracotta. And they would buy these and place them in the, in the temple or they would take them home. And so this is, you know, this is a seasonal business. And during the middle of this seasonal business, when Artemis is planning on making all this money, this guy Paul is there teaching everybody that, that if you make it with your hands, it's not a God. You can see the problem in that, right? Okay? Detrimental to his business. Okay? Here's the application for us. Here's what I felt like the Lord was, was, was speaking to me all week about this. Point number two. As we lead people out of dead religion, through the work of the Holy Spirit, it is going to create tor tor turmoil 
around us, okay? As we, as we take people by the hand and we show them that the Holy Spirit can speak to them, that God wants to be a part of their life, and we lead them out of dead religion into something that's alive, there's going to be turmoil around us. Okay, this is a normal part of the process and we should come to expect it. Okay, and we should see because we see it over and over again in the Old Testament and Jesus warns us about it. Look at at this warning in John chapter 15 verses 18 through 20. It says, if the world hates you, know that it has hated me before it hated you. If you were of the world, the world would love you as its own. But because you are not of the world, but I chose you out of the world, therefore the world hates you. Remember the word that I said to you, a servant is not greater than his master. If they persecuted me, they will also persecute you. If they keep my word, they will also keep yours. We're going to face opposition. Jesus tells his disciples right up in the front, there's going to be some opposition. Okay, this is not new. Jesus warns us it's going to happen. And, and because they hated him and we are being made into his likeness, they also are going to hate us. Okay, This opposition comes because the way we live is in contrast with those who claim to be believers, right? The opposition comes in times when we face opposition for us personally. It's because the things that we are speaking and doing are in contrast to what other people who who call themselves believers, who call themselves Christians, we're in contrast to what we see happening in their lives, okay? There's a stark difference between the two, and its only explanation is because one is a falsity and one is truth. Okay, and this is going to cause people to go on the defense. Let me explain what I'm talking about. You're walking with the Lord and you're saying, I'm going to be obedient to what the Holy Spirit tells me to do. A good example of that, well, again, we'll go to foster care. Scripture is very clear about taking care of widows and orphans. And you can, and I used to be one of those people, and and I've shared this story with you guys before. I used to always say, oh, yeah, we'll adopt some kids one day, man. The Bible says we should do it. And Bethany called me on the carpet one day and was like, you better quit saying that unless you're willing to do it. We've adopted two children. Okay, we see in Scripture the commands that that the Holy Spirit and and that God has for the church. And if you ask anybody down here in the Bible Belt, are these things true? They're going to say, yes, of course, they're in Scripture. But if you look at their lives, you're not seeing the evidence of that. Versus a group of people who are who are actively seeking the Lord and being obedient to what He says and leading leading radically different lives. And, and you see the di- there's a difference, and it causes people to be defensive. I've seen this in my life, okay? We've had friends and family, when we first started talking about adoption and foster care, who were like, you can't do that. What about your other kids? These are believers. These are good people who love us, who love the Lord. But when we're trying to be obedient to what God has called us to do and to walk through life the way God has called us to walk through it, they're saying, what are you doing? You've lost your mind. And I'm thinking, have you lost yours? Did you not read the same Bible that I read? Are we not looking at the same thing and I'm being obedient to this and you're calling me out for it? Right? Have you guys experienced that before? That's what causes the turmoil. And the, and the problem is not because we are being obedient. The problem is, is because it points out that they are not. And they get defensive. And we've all been in that place. All of us have been in a place where we know we've messed up. But instead of responding with humility, we, we respond with anger and with defensiveness, right? We can all identify with that. That's a thing that happens in all of our lives. And that's what we see happening here in Ephesus. We've got these men who are making their trade, selling these shrines to Artemis. And now Paul's coming in and saying something that they believe to be truth is not truth. And it's causing some problem here. 
But again, we see this over and over in Scripture. And so when it happens in our lives, as we're walking with the Lord, because I'm, I'm, this is a word from the Lord. You need to be prepared for this because as you continue to walk out your relationship with God and obey what He says, you're going to face opposition. And you need to be prepared for it. Look in, in 1 Samuel 8, 7. And the Lord said to Samuel, Obey the voice of the people in all that they say to you. For they have not rejected you, but they have rejected me from being king over them. The people rejecting what God's saying. Ezekiel 3, 7. But the house of Israel will not be willing to listen to you, for they are not willing to listen to me. Because all the house of Israel have a hard forehead and a stubborn heart. I like that one. We're going to face opposition. And most of the opposition, the fiercest opposition we're going to face is going to be from the people that call themselves believers. I'm not picking at any particular groups. Please don't, don't hear it that way. But I'm letting you know that as you, especially those of you that are young and just got out of mom and daddy's house, it's coming. Because God's going to call you as a couple or as a single person to do some things and your parents are going to go, what? And it's going to be time for you to step away from mom and dad and say, I'm a big boy. This is what the Lord says. This is what I got to do. Okay? If we're being persecuted, it should bring joy to us. And you might think, what? <laughs> if you're being persecuted, it should bring joy because it's evidence that we are becoming like Christ. Those that are persecuting us are going to rally together. They're going to puff themselves up so that they feel better about how they are doing things. They're going to gather up leaders who conform to and rally behind their thoughts. And we can have joy in that in knowing that we are confident. You know, we talk about all the time about journaling and writing things down. Some of you are doing that for the first time in your lives and you're experiencing how great that is. One of the, the great reasons for that is that there's been times in my life where the Lord's told me to do something that was seemingly crazy to everyone else that I knew. And I could, if they were willing to listen, I could say, look, let me show you what the Lord's been saying over the last three months. Over and over and over again, the same thing. I'm asking God a question. He's given me a direct answer through his scripture or through circumstances, through other believers. Okay? But, but people who aren't living that way are going to get defensive and they're going to gather up people around them. We, Glenn references this verse all the time, 2 Timothy 4.3. For the time is coming when people will not endure sound teaching, but having itching ears, they will accumulate for themselves teachers to suit their own passions. Okay? This is what we see happening in this passage. Demetrius the silversmith goes and grabs the other tradesmen, the other people that are in the working union with him, and goes, do you see what's happening? And he, he rallies them up, and he gets them all excited, and he, and he works their emotions, and he, and he gets them moving in his direction. Let's look at, at verse 28 through 34 in Acts chapter 19. When they heard this, they were enraged and were crying out, great is Artemis of the Ephesians. So the city was filled with the confusion, and they rushed together in the theater, dragging with them Gaius and Asterchus, <laughs> Macedonians, who were Paul's companions in travel. But when Paul wished to go in among the crowd, the disciples would not let him. And even some of the Azarchs, who were friends of his, sent to him and were urging him not to venture into the theater. Now some cried out one thing, some another, for the assembly was in confusion. And most of them did not know why they had come together. Some of the crowd prompted Alexander whom the Jews had put forward, and Alexander, motioning with his hand, went to make a defense to the crowd. But when they recognized this, recognized that he was a Jew, for about two hours they all cried with one voice, great is Artemis of the Ephesians. So here we see Demetrius has gathered, he's rallied up these people, 
and you see a little bit of Luke's humor in this passage where he's pointing out that they don't even know why they're there. They don't even know why they're mad, but they are, by golly. And they're going to tell you about it. And so the Jews are looking at this scenario and, and are like, you know what, we better get in front of this thing because um, we, don't, we don't believe what this Paul guy is preaching. So they, get, they, they pick this guy, Alexander, and I'd like to have been there because I, I picture it's like everybody's standing around looking at each other like, I'm not going to do it. Who's going to do it? And they just kind of push Alexander up there. And so he gets up there and he motions with their hand for everybody to be quiet. And they realize that he's a Jew. And remember, Jews also teach that things that are made with hands are, are idols and they're not real gods. And they, no, get off the stage, and they, they continue to chant, okay? But the, the third thing I want us to understand is that the enemy is going to use emotions and confusions to stir up a crowd. Look, I cannot tell you how many times I've been involved with churches where somebody gets mad about the color of the carpet, and they gather a bunch of people around them, and they rally together, and they get mad. And if you go ask somebody, what are you all so upset about? They really can't even tell you. They just know they're mad. Okay, thankfully we don't deal with that here, okay, but that happens, that is a real thing, and there's going to be people in your lives who are going to come to you with problems like that, I had somebody this week who came and told me about all the things that were wrong with this church, okay, and the Holy Spirit told me not to say a word, let them walk it out, okay, but there's going to be times where God does give you an opportunity to speak truth into that and say, you know, you're worried about the color of the carpet, but that really is not a big deal, right? It's just carpet. Somebody's going to spill coffee in it next week, and it's not going to be pretty anyway, okay? We know how that works in churches, okay? The enemy is preying on their emotions to conjure up passion in the crowd. The enemy is going to use our emotions. You know, there are times as believers when, when we are maturing, but we still got a little bit of that sin in us, and somebody's going to do or say something, and it's going to strike us the wrong way, and the enemy is going to use that emotion against us. And he is going to try to fire us up for the sake of getting us all discombobulated so that we can make a mess of things. Okay? I'll tell you what the word means later if you don't know what it means. <laughs> he causes them to fear the loss of income and the diminishment of their religion. So the enemy gets them all fired up. He gets them emotional. And he gets in their pocketbooks. Because that's when people really get upset when you start messing with their money. Right? Okay? And so he tell, he, the enemy makes them fear that they're going to lose income and that their religion is going to be counted as nothing. Now, all of their city pride is tied up in this temple. And the enemy is convincing them that, that their, their pride, their identity is being tarnished by this guy, Paul. Okay? And as the enemy draws this, this crowd, many of them don't even know why they're upset. They're mad. I don't know why, but they're there and they're mad. And then let's look at the last part of this. Verses uh, 35 through 41. And when the town clerk had quieted the crowd, he said, Men of Ephesus, who is there who does not know that the city of the Ephesians is the temple keeper of the great Artemis and of the sacred stone that fell from the sky? Seeing then these things cannot be denied, you ought to be quiet and do nothing rash. For you have brought these men here who are neither sacrilegious nor blasphemers of our goddess. If therefore Demetrius and his craftsmen with him have a complaint against anyone, the courts are open and there are pro-councils. Pro Let them bring charges against one another. But if you seek anything further, it shall be settled in the regular assembly. For we are really in danger of being charged with rioting today, since there is no cause that we can justify this commotion. And when they had said these things, they dismissed the assembly. Finally, there's a voice for reason. Point number four is God's going to come to our defense, and he's going to quiet the noise. If we just wait... And let the Holy Spirit, you see, in, in this passage, we talk about how Paul wanted to rush in there 
and save his disciples and clear his name. And, and there were some other disciples there who listened to the Holy Spirit who grabbed him and said, nope, stay out of that. Because things could have gotten very bad for Paul very quickly. Okay? In the midst of this riot, God sends in a third party who can see through all the mess, through all the emotion, to the, to the heart of what's really going on. This guy is, and they, uh, they use in different translations, they use different ways of, of referring to him. And this one, it's, they call him a town clerk. But really, what I discovered this week is he's really like the CEO of the town. Remember, the Romans had conquered all of this area. And so he's the guy that the Romans have put in place to manage and control the city, collect the taxes, all of that. He's the guy in charge of the whole city. So he's the boss. So he goes into this riot that's happening in this, in this meeting hall and says, hey, guys. Um, I understand you're upset, but you need to chill out because you're about to get us in trouble because if Rome finds out they're rioting, now they're bringing in the military and they're going to handle the riot and this guy's going to get kicked out of office because he's, he's messing up, okay? So God sends in somebody who's outside of the conflict who can look at it and say, hey, everybody needs to chill out a little bit. What, we're, what you're frustrated about, what you're angry about, is not even legal, okay? He points out that Paul and his disciples haven't done anything illegal or even blasphemous against Artemis. These guys are mad, they rally the crowd behind them, they go in, they start rioting, and, and everybody's upset, and they don't even know why. As you are changing how you do life in order to be obedient to the word, you're going to face opposition from many in your life, okay? And from my experience, the fiercest opposition is going to be from those that love you the most, but who haven't learned what it means to, to walk in community. That's tough. That's a hard pill to swallow, to know that, that the people that love you the most are going to be the ones that are fighting you the hardest, but that's reality. It's not always the case, but a lot of times it is. God is pushing us as a body beyond what most of our culture today knows or even believes about what it means to have a relationship with God, okay? And I'm sure that you've already experienced some taste of that in your own life. As you've been walking with the Lord, those that are around you that call themselves believers, I'm not saying that they're not, but they don't really understand. You know, it's, it's funny in, the, in this area, when you talk about the gathering place, and you've heard Glenn mention this before, like people don't know what to do with us. They don't know what box to put us in because we call ourselves a Southern Baptist church, but we don't, and we are, but we don't look like and operate like the rest of them around us. That's that opposition that I'm talking about. Thankfully, so far, it has not gotten to the riot point, okay, and I, I don't think it ever will, but... There is going to be some opposition. I had a conversation with somebody just this week, and they were um, talking about, you know, a youth ministry position that's opened up and, and all the things that needed to be done in order to have that position filled properly. And none of the things that they listed were really things that matter because we have a way of operating that, we're, that as Southern Baptists we're locked into, and we don't operate in those parameters because the Lord has told us to operate differently, and it's going to cause some opposition, Okay. Sometimes when we face that opposition, that opposition is going to give us the opportunity to, to show them what we're talking about. There's been times in my life where I've caught opposition from people and I've said, let me show you what the Lord is doing. And we sit down together and we walk through the scripture together and we say, this is what God is saying. And they see it and God uses that as an opportunity to grow them and to grow me. Remember we talked a while ago that we grab them by the hands and we're walking to maturity together. There's going to be opportunities for that, but there's going to be other opportunities where you, like, I, I had one of these, somebody that I love dearly, 
told me I was being selfish and stupid for, for doing something that God was telling me to do. And I said, let me show you what the Lord's been saying, and they wouldn't even look at it. I said, no, get that out of here. You're doing something wrong. What do you do in that situation? I know what I had to do. I had to say, I love you. We disagree. I'm sorry. I'm doing what God's called me to do. You can call it selfish if you want to, but I'm going to do it. And that was hard. It was a hard pill to swallow. But we have to be determined to follow the Holy Spirit and to, to do what he's calling us to do. In closing, I, I just want to say this. When you face opposition, don't just assume it's because you're doing something wrong. It may be, in fact, because you're doing everything right. If, if you are facing opposition, don't assume it's because you're doing something wrong. We live in a very selfish, calloused world. And when, when we begin to live selfishly, it catches people's attention. And sometimes it's not the attention that we want. Sometimes it catches people's attention in that they go, man, I, I don't know what they're doing in their life, but I want to be a part of that. Sometimes they look at it and they go, man, that dude's weird. Something, something, he's crazy. That church is nuts because they're doing all this stuff that we don't think is necessary. Don't make assumptions. When, when you face opposition, don't just make an assumption that you've done something wrong. Double check your work. Go back. Look at your journal and say, okay, am I missing something here or are they missing something here? And give the Lord an opportunity to speak that again, okay? When, in times in my life where I've faced opposition, there are some mentors, some men in my life that I know and I trust. Not all of them are part of this church, but they're men. Here's the qualifications. They know the Lord. They walk with him daily, and they know how to hear his voice. That's what I'm asking. That's who I'm asking for advice. There's men in my life that I have a ton amount of respect for. They have a relationship with God, but they don't know how to hear his voice. I, that's not who I want to talk to, okay? I need somebody that can hear from the Holy Spirit and say, yes, you're doing the right thing, or no, Will, you've missed it. And here's why God is saying that you've missed it. I, that's great, because then I learn. I'd rather know, right? You'd rather know out front that you were making a mistake? That's going to happen too. We're walking this out together. We're learning together what it means to, to listen to the Lord and to be obedient to Him, okay? But we don't need to, to be making assumptions just based on the evidence around us, around what people are saying. Because emotions get involved, foolishness gets involved, and we need to make sure that we're going back to the source and saying, God, are you... That's what we do. As the elders here at this church, anytime that an outside party says something to we, hey, is this what God said? Yep, this is what God said. Okay, we're moving forward. We're going to continue to do what God's called us to do. Okay, and that's... That is why our church operates the way it does. That's why it feels the way it does. It's because... Instead of just making assumptions and, and living out through our emotions, we go back to the Word and we say, what is God saying specifically about this? And we'd be in it to that. Okay, let's pray. God, I thank you that you're personal enough that as we walk out what it means to be in a relationship with you, that you give us an opportunity to, to double-check our work and to say, God, did I get this wrong? that you don't hold that against us, but that you welcome it. God, my, my prayer, my request is that as we, uh, as we walk this life with you, that we wouldn't face opposition. God, I, I, I would love for you to just make it easy, but we know that's not how the world works. And we know that, that that opposition can be used to grow both us and the people's lives around us. 
And Father, I ask that you continually just transform our minds and our spirits to understand that when we talk about being the church, or we talk about doing church in our homes, that we're not talking about a place. God, we understand that, that you are calling us to a different kind of lifestyle, a lifestyle like you live where we give up every moment for those around us. We would live selfishly for the sake of the gospel and so that people would know who you are because of the way that we love one another, the way we give ourselves to one another. God, I know that it's your desire that in this community, in Alexandria and central Louisiana, Father, I know it is your desire that people would walk closely with you and that your church would become known as a place that loves. Father, that's what we want too. We want to be the kind of people that, that lay our lives before you and we, we forsake it all. As David Platt says, we write the blank check and say, God, no matter what the cost, I'm going to be obedient to what you say. No matter what the people in my life that I love, no matter what they say, I'm going to pursue you because you are more important than anything else in my life. God, please bring us to a place where we, we honestly, truly feel that way and we act on it. Thank you, Jesus. Amen.